Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, which focuses on rural health in the Midwest. Over 10 episodes, we talk with people in a variety of communities about their experiences and perspectives on rural life, employment, and health. Our aim is to deepen understanding of the complexity of rural life and celebrate rural areas. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. Welcome back. I'm Hannah Schultz, your host and producer of this series on rural health in the Midwest. This is the final episode of this series. What a joy it has been for me to spend 10 weeks sharing stories of rural life and rural health with you all. This series has by no means been a comprehensive look at rural life, or even rural life in the Midwest, or even rural life in Iowa. But through the stories we've shared, we hope to have shown a light on the diversity and complexity of rural experiences. Today, we're going to talk with five faculty members from the University of Iowa College of Public Health about why this was a series we felt compelled to produce. All of our guests today are active in rural health work and research, and were involved in planning and guiding this series. Typically, I introduce our guests, but because we have five people today, I want to let them introduce themselves to give our listeners an opportunity to hear their voices and connect their voices to their names. We're going to start with Hans. Yeah, my name is Hans Lehmler. I'm faculty in the Department of Occupation and Environmental Health. And one of the things I do within the college is lead a center that's funded by the National Institutes of Health that promotes studies of the environmental health sciences, in particular as it relates to the rural environment. And there are very few centers along those lines in the United States that really worry about environmental health in in rural America, in particular in the rural Midwest. I'm Rima Afifi. I am faculty in the Department of Community and Behavioral Health of the College in Public Health, and I lead a center that's funded by the Center for Disease Prevention and Control, um, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health. Hi, my name is Brandi Jansen. I'm faculty in the Department of Occupational and Environmental Health at the College of Public Health. Um, I also direct uh, a state-funded center funded by the state of Iowa that focuses on occupational illnesses and injuries uh, associated with agriculture. And most of my research uh, has looked at alternative agriculture and local food systems in our state and in the Midwest. I'm Edith Parker. I'm the Dean of the College of Public Health. And um, previous to becoming Dean was involved uh, with the uh, center that uh, Rima directs, uh, the uh, Prevention Research Center, and also worked with Hans and others on the um, Environmental Health Sciences Research Center on the Outreach Corps. Hi, I'm Diane Rollman. I am a faculty member in occupational and environmental health, and I direct a center called the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest. And we're focused on promoting the health, safety, and most of all, the well-being of uh, people working in our community. All of us in this conversation are affiliated with the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're in a pretty rural state. We have several centers focused on rural health in some way, But I was still curious enough to ask our guests why this was an important series for our college. So 
I think it's very important to highlight the issues around rural health and well-being because they get somewhat less attention uh, overall uh, in the um, in the public health field or other uh, disciplinary fields. And yet there's so much of our lives, wherever we live, uh, nationally or globally, that is affected by what happens in rural areas. Um, so that was one part of it. The second part of it was that our location um, in Iowa means that many of us are engaged with rural communities in understanding and supporting a rural well-being. And uh, it was an opportunity to highlight, I think, all the work that we're doing in partnership with communities um, at the College of Public Health. And the third thing is I think that that experience that we've all had has shown us very clearly that the, um, that the general attitude about rural meaning mostly negative things um, is very contrary to the experiences that we've all had. And we wanted to show uh, or to suggest a paradigm shift to see rural as very diverse and not sort of a, the image, the one image that seems to come to mind when people think about rural, but also to highlight the, the, the amazing positive uh, assets that are um, held within rural communities. Rural health is one of our collective areas of excellence in the college. And I think that uh, we have so much going on that sometimes we don't even stop and uh, and pat ourselves on the back about it and um, and sort of through these different centers and activities and research and engagement that we have um, I think we've also been able to uh, kind of work across our different centers and research projects to harness that um, and I think with the growing up I, I, I think Rima's right um, too much in public health, we take a deficit approach and not a sort of strengths base. So it's really important that we highlight the strengths in rural areas. But I also think we need to acknowledge that uh, there is a growing concern about the health disparities that exist in rural areas just by being a resident or being born in a rural area. Um, and so that's something that we really want to kind of bring attention uh, to our colleagues across the country and in public health and, and then not in public health. We didn't define rural in this series, or Midwest, and throughout the series we haven't usually taken health head-on or defined it. But it's been a theme throughout, no matter who we've talked with. Hans does an excellent job explaining why it's important to have a holistic understanding of health. I think it's important to discuss briefly, you know, how do we define health? And uh, if you look at the World Health Organization, they define it very broadly. They talk about the physical, the social, and the mental health being. So a lot of the topics that are covered in the podcasts and all the different series, they in some way touch on these various aspects. So if you are not connected to the rest of the world because you live in a rural place where you don't have broadband access, you know, you're, you're kind of at a disadvantage from a social perspective. You cannot participate like people that live in coastal areas and in big urban uh, areas. And, and so that, you know, in some ways from that perspective affects indirectly your, your, your well-being. And so from that perspective, I think it's important to see that 
when we're talking about this, it's not, is there something, you know, that you need to go and see, see the doctor for. Um, it, it's much broader how we should look at, at health. I think one of the goals of the podcast was to let people define rural themselves. And so the podcast presented a snapshot of different viewpoints and different different scenarios. And being able to listen to those, it might expand your definition of rural, but it might also you know, contract that too. But the point is, is I don't think there is one definition of rural that it can be defined in many ways, whether you use economic metrics, whether you use, whether you have a Walmart, um, the number of people living there and how you define it will indicate how you're gonna act on that. So, so the not defining it, I think that's the point of this is to let you draw your own conclusions. I think that rural means very different things to very different people. Um, and in fact, a lot of people that we may consider live in rural areas themselves don't. And that came out in the interviews quite a bit. I didn't think I was in a rural area until I went to, it's almost, it's almost relative in a sense. Um, you know, they went somewhere else and they realized, or they lived, or they now live in a rural area, but lived in a rural area that was much smaller. And so now they don't think they, you know, it, it's such a relative term. Um, and one of the things that comes out in the literature a lot is that we rarely, in defining rural, ask people that live in rural areas themselves what they consider to be rural and, and you know, what about it um, they enjoy. We always are sort of falling back on these quantitative measures that are mostly economic employment measures rather than, you know, the, the breadth of what's, uh, what's important and beautiful about rural through asking, asking people themselves. In a few classes that I've taught uh, that have focused on rural issues the first day, I have make all the students line up in a single line from most rural to most urban. I say you can't stack on top of each other. You have to be, and, and you have to make those decisions. And this is before I give them any of those quantitative measures. I don't, you know, this is day one. <laughs> and then it is so fascinating to watch them sort themselves out um, and figure it out, you know, especially that kind of, there's a big chunk of them. There's always these kids who are in the Chicago suburbs, right? And whoever's closest to the city gets the most urban designation. And then on the, you know, on the sort of rural end of the spectrum, right? These, you know, tiny little, sometimes unincorporated towns. Um, but then there's this bit in the middle and there's a lot of negotiation. And I remember one, one instance in particular where two people said, well, our towns are about the same size. And so we, um, I, I wound up being the more urban one because my town has a Walmart and hers didn't. So you think about what your resources are, what your connections are, and 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 they had to define it themselves, right? I didn't give them any definitions. It was it's it's a really it's a fun exercise. Everybody should do it. <laughs> the more people I talked to in this series, and the more hours I spent going back through and re-listening to the interviews, the more I became aware of how my rural upbringing is a big part of my identity. I grew up in a small town, but I left half my life ago, and yet I know. I still view a lot of things through that small town lens. Rurality can be identity and a point of pride. I think, you know, one thing, it's interesting to talk to people who've left or who've left and come back uh, or who've gone on to, to, do, to work in fields that are not typical in rural areas um, and the way it sort of distances you a bit from your origins, but you still sort of maintain them, I guess, you know, there's always a, you know, I, I, for those of us who do, you know, work in public health, part of our job is to kind of develop rapport with people and think about what we have in common with them. 
Um, and I know for myself that, you know, I fall back on my rural upbringing a fair amount, way more than I ever do my academic credentials, which mean very little to most of the people I work with. Good for them, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's I, I, something I think about a lot just as it's wherever you wind up going, even if you leave, you're usually, I, most people I find like, oh yeah, if you're from a small town or a little community or you're from a farm kid, you connect across those lines regardless of where you're from. And even if it's many years later and you're off in an urban area, it kind of stays with you. You know, Brandon, that's interesting and um, just a, a non-empirical, but yeah, rather a life experience of having grown up in a what I now know is a large town of 7,000, but a high school that was pretty small. And thinking about the advantages of, you know, when I then got my first job at, at Michigan and people were talking about the high schools of 3,000 students. And then, you know, some real concerns about even if a student wanted to be on an athletic team, it, you know, it was nearly impossible. And, and the kind of uh, opportunities that rural schools have, um, by the time I got to college, a friend of mine was looking at the yearbook and said, are you everywhere because you were the editor? And I said, well, that helped. But I think it was just because there was opportunity to do everything from sports to student council, et cetera. And, um, and how that does shape, I think, people's sense of civic engagement and involvement. Um, whereas in more urban areas, it's, you know, it's, it's just so hard, the competition to, to have all of those different experiences. It's something I've not really thought about that I think really does sort of mark you going forward. I think also what came out was that's the sense that there is community in at least those that are living in rural areas really value the community um, that comes from living in that rural area, that they know their neighbors, that they get together for potlucks or um, that there's this sense of community and caring about each other as part of their identity, I think, as part of the identity of what they consider to be and culture, identity and culture, I'd say. So I wanted to throw something out, which is maybe more an international perspective. You know, I guess some of the listeners have picked up on May Axon have, have placed me that I'm not U.S. born, uh, I'm originally from Germany. And I kind of lived in the big town, but I also lived on the countryside in Germany. And in many ways, a lot of the problems that we talked about, they, they you know apply there as well, that there was probably on the countryside a stronger community that you know, you'd go to the uh, big celebration at the fire department uh, you didn't do that in necessary in, in, in the city. Um, the environmental health problems are the same. They also produce manure, maybe not from pigs, it's, it's cows. Um, but a lot of these issues, they're, they're the same. They're, you know, everywhere on the planet, you know, probably very, very similar. The identity issues, and conflicts there are, are the same. And so in, in some ways, you know, in that regard, we're here in Iowa, not, not unique in that regard. There are a lot of other people are walking the same shoes as well. So I thought it's just something I want to throw out there. Um, and that maybe it's actually good sometimes to look at some of the solutions elsewhere. And actually, if you talk about, you know, being sustainable or regenerative, you know, Germany also is a country with a lot of wind energy like Iowa. And, you know, some of the listeners probably heard David Osterberg talk about this, where we are in Iowa. And that we're doing very well with renewable energies, whether it's solar or wind. So again, there's a, another similarity that you know applies globally. So we should 
look elsewhere and, and maybe use the best ideas that are out there. In the field I was trained in, human rights and peace building, we commonly talk about the concept of othering. Othering is essentially the idea that the more we talk about differences, the more we focus on what sets us apart, the easier it is for us to not recognize our shared humanity. Or to put it simply, us versus them. I asked most of our guests in the last nine episodes what some misperceptions of their communities were, and I was constantly thinking back to this idea of othering. Real or perceived, misperceptions can be powerful. Our guests today weigh in on how misperceptions affect our ability to work together. When you talk about stereotypes, I always get a little concerned when we try to categorize people in black and white. And we're not black and white. We're multi shades of color with our personalities, with our lifestyles, with our interests. And I hope that this series, the point of this series is to show that variety and help us to see similarities. You know, everybody wants that sense of connection, whether you live in a small town or a big city. So when you characterize, you know, small towns as you know being more friendly and big cities you can't make friends, I don't think that's true. Um, you know, I think you can have that. And how you find that connections, maybe it is easier when you have a smaller number of students in your high school or a, a community where you see the same people over time. But even in large cities, we can build that sense of community. But I think the, the podcast series really is showing maybe some of the similarities um, and saying, well, we're not all that different. And we all believe in the same thing. You know, we want it, we care about people. Um, we want to have value in our life and our work. We want to help our environment. We want to help our communities. So I, I always caution when we try to dichotomize people instead of trying to say, wow, we have a lot in common. I think that's maybe a more productive approach. I do think on sort of both sides, if you will, um, there's a lack of understanding about how rural and urban areas are really connected to each other structurally, economically, et cetera. You know, um, I do think that's something maybe that rural people understand as the folks who tend to be working in extractive industries and in food production and manufacturing and producing goods that wind up in urban areas. Um, but, you know, it, it's sort of, it's this cyclical and, and really tightly integrated relationship that we, we kind of miss um, if, you know, particularly if we, you know, dichotomize and, big versus small or us versus them. And I think thinking across the whole, you know, if it's economic, you think along the whole supply chain, if it's, you know, in terms of health, um, thinking across all of the systems and thinking about everybody's health and well-being, no matter where they are in the, in the sort of the, um, the rural to urban continuum. Um, and also thinking about how they're connected to each other and actually the, the, the health of one improves the health of the other. It's not like pie, you know, <laughs> if I get a piece, you don't get one. That's not how it works. So I think thinking along those lines is like Diane said, a lot more productive. Um, but I think on, I think both urban areas and rural areas could remember more often that they're connected to each other uh, in important ways. Um, and that seems to be a universal as well that we forget those connections. You know, I'm kind of listening to, to some of the things I've just heard and I think a lot of things is, you know, this applies to the global scale, but even for, for uh, you know, state like Iowa, that there are certain experiences that as humans we don't have. And so we can't relate to that. 
you know, working on a farm is, 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 is very different than, uh, you know, working at a university, uh, which is something I, you know, appreciate very well. And this is quite different from being a software engineer that maybe can work remotely with everybody around the world because we have the technology, presumably, that makes that possible. Um, so I think there are a lot of things that just because we've never walked the other shoes that we, we can't really relate to those people that work in the uh, walk in these shoes. Uh, and that creates then a lot of, well, they're different, right? Something is different there and, and it really is not. And that applies to people living maybe in Chicago versus somebody in a small town in Iowa, whatever a small town is, right? Um, and then that applies to also if we go to other places on the planet. And um, so I think that word of a continuum, I think is important to keep in, in, in mind in this context. Uh, there's a whole spectrum and it doesn't matter where you live, you know, we're all ultimately human beings and we need the same things and can give the same things. Really in understanding how our environment influences us. Um, yeah, I think that is, is an important factor. If you're living in a big city there, you have a very different environment where you're living in an area where you don't have a lot of traffic, you don't have a lot of houses, you don't have a lot of people living there. And that certainly affects our well-being on several levels. You know, there's probably a social component to it. There's a, what we would call a, a exposure to the things that are in our air and our water and our food that's going to be different and that, that will have an impact on health. Um, and that will be quite different depending on where you live. If that so much has something to do with fitting in a category, rural or urban or something like this, I kind of doubt that that's necessarily true. There are probably cities that are clean and urban parts of the world that are quite dirty and where you know you may not want to live because it's not going to be healthy for you and for your children. And so I think that's important that, to keep that in mind in particular from the scientific perspective, if we're looking at specific problems. It, it really comes down to looking at that through the lens of the people that we ultimately want to help uh, to address an environmental problem. And as Brendy pointed out, you know, we need to engage with, with the community and, and think about what do they want? And, and that then informs how we can help them uh, potentially. And it's not somebody coming in from the outside and, and tells somebody what to do. Again, that's probably something that applies to humans everywhere on the planet. To add on to Hans, I would, what I've been struck having initially for the first 15 years of my academic career worked on urban areas, mostly around environmental health, and then coming to a more rural area is that connection of, of you know, sources of air pollution. To find out in Detroit that most of the sources, uh, there were mobile sources, but the point source emission was coming up from rural areas, coal fire plants down in the Tennessee Valley that goes all the way up. So rural does impact the urban. And I think we also know in terms of water sources and some of the runouts of nitrate that are now ending up down in New Orleans, a little bit further south of everybody who's on the Mississippi. And it goes the other way of, you know, urban sources of air pollution, et cetera, that go out in water to, to rural areas. And I think it's just a, a pretty tangible example of how it goes both ways and how interconnected we are. Um, for health um, and, and well-being. Remember how I said earlier we didn't really define health or tackle it head-on? Well, here's an example. 
One of the most recurring themes throughout this series was the threat of limited or non-existent access to broadband. Guess what? We think that's a public health issue. You know, I think the sort of overall theme of connections between things when you're in a, a space that is a broadband gap, you're, you lack connections in some ways, and that can have really direct effects on health, right? Like I can't access a provider I need, but also kind of the more nuanced, I can't really connect maybe with the people, you know, I want to, thinking about the pandemic and all of that, well, get on Zoom and have your Thanksgiving. Well, that doesn't help if your broadband won't support a Zoom, a Zoom meeting. Um, I will say on the flip side and thinking back to um, Edith's comment about taking a strengths-based approach. It also does mean that connections in rural areas do have to happen in real life sometimes. And I think that was one of the, you know, the arts and culture um, uh, session uh, episode was really powerful in that way, thinking about how music and theater and storytelling and, and those elements are actually often really strong in rural areas in ways that people don't know. And, and sometimes the, you know, the, the lack of access or the lack of kind of constant attention to broadband may facilitate some of those things. So I think, you know, there's always, it's always worth looking at the other side of it as well. I guess I'll build off of what Brandy said is, you know, when we think about, um, so a lot of my work is looking at employers, small employers, and, you know, how do we help them have safe workplaces, keep their workers healthy and be productive because they, we want to keep them in business. And a lot of times, you know, small employers don't have the resources that are available in, in large um, organizations, but also that you can get, we stick with the broadband with some of the connectivity. So it means that people need to do different jobs. So as an owner, you may also be the human resource person. You may also be the safety person. You may be the wellness person. And, you know, Brandy was talking about with the arts, how those interactions occurring in person and you have to be creative, we see that in small businesses too. So when you are in a community, you need to look at community resources and what's available. And when the college has gone out to uh, communities to talk and learn um, from their business leaders, that's what we hear, is we see partnerships between the hospitals that are there, between the schools, between different employers, and it's a chance to share and share solutions that have worked, but also commonly address problems. And it's a unique, it's different from a situation where all those resources are under one roof. I think the other thing about broadband is it sort of is it's symbolic of the lack of investment in rural areas. Um, and, you know, and that's not the case around the world. I remember we were uh, talking to somebody who was visiting Cedar Rapids, who was a resident of Thailand and was going to do a, wanted to do a visiting um, sort of stint with us. And we both agreed after she was, she was zooming with me, this was a few years ago from um, Cedar Rapids. And we both agreed after a, a few minutes that we'd wait till she got back to Thailand because the connection was so bad. And sure enough, two weeks later, it was picture perfect. Um, and you have to ask, well, why do we not have that? She was in a rural area outside of Cedar Rapids. So why do we not invest in our own um, country and, 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 and in rural areas to give them that infrastructure? And that's just one example, I think, of others that are not there. I think back to the, um, to the, podcast um, on the comprehensive wealth framework, where they talked about the eight capitals. And I think we could consider any one of those capitals to be um, strong in very interesting and important ways in rural areas because of the social connections that we've heard. 
but also potentially limited by the lack of access to, to broadband. Um, whether that's um, no access to the healthcare professionals that they, that they ought to have access to um, in those areas and therefore need to have the connection to be able to do the more remote um, uh, access to healthcare providers or through cultural capital or through any of those potential capitals. Thinking back a couple weeks ago to the service delivery episode, telehealth was a big part. You can't have a telehealth appointment without internet. I think that's really been kind of the silver lining of the pandemic is that we really had to stop the way we were doing things and say, well, how can we do this differently? And all of us have had to rise to that challenge. And it's, it's amazing what we've accomplished. You know, the telehealth no-show rates is awesome. Um, the fact that schools can continue it and you can give access to people that maybe had difficulty leaving their homes. Um, there's just so many positives, you know, unfortunately it was a long road to get here, but I think, I think stopping and thinking about how we, how we connect is um, a positive. And we need to just keep going with that and not fall back to our old ways, but look forward and say, what, well, what else can we do? What else is out there? And that's the exciting part. The ability to make a difference in your community is much different in a small town than in a city. We heard this repeatedly. I asked our guests to connect this to health. You know, it's when you think about taking a community engaged approach in research or, or engagement, um, and you, you know, you sort of do this scan of, well, who are, regardless of the size of the community, who are decision makers, who are local leaders, who are, you know, who do I need to connect with to help answer my question or help facilitate answering their question, et cetera. Um, and in rural areas, it's really interesting because those networks tend to be very tight and they overlap a lot. Um, and, you know, you were just talking about local control and I was sort of internally thinking about, um, you know, what that means in a small community where uh, these circles of ownership and, and power honestly can be really small and tight. And in some ways that that is, that really helps you kind of understand maybe a broader scope really quickly just because of the size of it. On the other hand, you realize that there's still sort of these kind of pockets of, you know, knowledge and um, social and cultural capital to go back to the capitals um, that are, are present. Um, but I think that, you know, what you often find is if you have a champion for one issue, you have a champion for several issues, and that maybe that one individual then is tied to all these other things that they're, they're very interconnected, which um, is, makes sense to us, I think, in public health, because we know that everything is about public health. Um, but uh, it, it also, um, you know, um, maybe motivates people who are living there as well. I just, I kind of think, Brandy, that that's one of the nice things is you can find the champions in rural communities to work with. And in some ways, things can move fast because they, they often play multiple roles in leadership and with the communities. And so they can make a phone call or, you know, talk to someone and things can happen really fast. To build on that, um, if you can find... I mean, there are people that have lived in these communities for a very, very, very long time, and they are so well connected um, in their communities to both the formal leadership, but also the informal leadership that exists in every community. So if you can, if you can, um, if you can do the work, the community engaged work and understand who those people are, then, um, then the opportunity to partner with the 
in the decision makers, both in formal and informal positions, becomes much richer um, and quite a lot easier. On the, um, I think the last part that Randy said, which is um, about the one issue and many issues, I'm reminded of the second episode, I think, uh, community coalition or community committee. And it started off as a, a Latino uh, community com committee and it didn't quite get off the ground. Um, and then they, they, they shifted from that when there was all the raids to having a huge like peace rally that 500 people showed up at. Um, and then they kept going back to trying to, to do these committees. And it was generally the same group of people that was, that was coming together to try to organize, but they kept wanting it to be bigger than themselves. Um, and eventually it did become bigger than themselves and, and took off. So again, it's that idea of um, core, you know, a core group of people that may be quite invested in just the well-being of people in their communities. I think back to this, this idea of the strength of, of rural areas and that really want to work to bring people together um, and, and try not to push a particular agenda unless the community wants that agenda. Brandy sort of mentioned the strengths in, in rural areas sometimes of, of social networks and uh, maybe due to broadband or whatever issues. But I do think for uh, public health in, in, interventions that may be trying to use social networks, it's uh, oftentimes easier to identify those in a rural network just because of the density and the number uh, than it was in, the, in it is in urban areas. And certainly having tried some peer help or delay health models in rural areas versus urban areas, you find that it's a, it's a whole different uh, thing in, in more urban areas and perhaps in rural areas. All right, here's another topic we heard a lot, climate change. The fifth episode of this series was all about the environment. Why does climate change threaten health and rural life? Well, if I think in terms of Iowa, there are you know, I think a number of things that happened since I moved to Iowa in 2003 that were kind of, for me, like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's almost a, a life-changing event. It was this flood in 2008, which was, you know, a, a big deal. Um, and then, well, last year we had this storm that I still can't pronounce the name that nobody's ever heard of. And I honestly, I do not want to learn the name because it was a pretty big deal and it damaged a lot of properties. And and so forth. Um, and I know here where I live, some of the damage is still not repaired. And I hope people will be okay over the winter because the roof is damaged. And, uh, you know, for some reason, they needed to wait until the spring to fix it. But the key thing is that these events, these severe weather events, if this is big flooding events, if these, uh, these storms or other severe weather events, really hot, high temperatures for long periods of times, you know, in the 100 plus degree Fahrenheit. Um, that's what climate change, what the models are telling us, this is what's going to happen more and more often. We'll have more of these weird uh, weather events. And that is, from many perspectives, not, not a good thing, right? Um, I know that I'm not a farmer, but I know soil moisture is really important when you're growing corn and having too much moisture is, not good for your yields. And so if there's, you know, flooding or too much rain, it, it's not good and vice versa, not having that um, critical element available, you know, for the crops to grow is, is a big problem. And so as this becomes worse over the next decades because of global climate change, 
Um, I think this is a fundamental problem on many levels, just, just because of these severe weather events that, that we're seeing. And then as it gets warmer here, and I was just showing this in class the other day that, you know, kind of climate-wise, they're moving to where Texas is right now with their climate. And that has also, you know, a lot of implications, you know, from a, from a farming perspective, um, that there are new pests that, that are moving up north, right? Uh, for me, from a research perspective, that's, that's really interesting. Oh, so now they need to use pesticides to fight, you know, a new pest that's that's suddenly in Iowa that hasn't been here before. And well, what does that do? Is is that moving around in the environment? Does it get into people and does it have any health effects? But it, it, it poses a lot of different challenges. So I think there are a lot of challenges that we're going to face with what we're seeing is now happening as a result of climate change. And really the, the, the thing that we need to deal with is going forward, A, how, how do we keep it to a point that you know, it, it doesn't really destroy the planet. That would be kind of the, the worst case scenario, I guess. But really, how do we adapt to what is actually going on right now? You know, and I'm sometimes thinking now when I'm sitting at home uh, and the storm is blowing outside, well, what's going to happen to my roof? And I think of the time when I actually applied for a position in Florida where, you know, you talk about hurricanes and how you're building maybe the house in a special way that that doesn't happen. And where, you know, ultimately this had to happen because you want your building to be hurricane-proof. Now, do we need to think about things like this in, in Iowa as well? How do we adapt to that? And how do we adapt to that in a way that's you know, doable? Um, and so from that perspective, it is something that will affect us here in Iowa. It will affect the United States and it will affect the, the entire world. And since we're all connected, you know, things that happen in one part of the world, they, they will have some effect here in Iowa as well. I think, too, thinking about climate change in rural areas is it's particularly poignant, um, in part because rural communities tend to be the home of some of the extractive industries that contribute to climate change, both, um, you know, think about energy extraction, um, but also agriculture and modern agricultural practices uh, and often contribute. But there's also potential for the solutions there, too. So I hope that um, the conversation can move to a more solution-based approach and sort of in a way that empowers, go back to local control, empowers local people um, to manage land in ways that, um, you know, can store carbon and um, the new term is um, uh, regenerative agriculture, right? Re-engaging and, and rebuilding carbon systems. And I think there's a lot of potential for that. Um, I think we have some communication work to do there, but there, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity for rural areas to lead in combating climate change, I think. We've just released nine episodes about public health in rural areas. All episodes were recorded, produced, and released during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet we only really addressed the pandemic directly in two episodes. We've obviously learned a ton about COVID in the last year, and the rhetoric around COVID in rural areas has changed an incredible amount. Early in the pandemic, many people thought rural areas would be naturally protected from the wrath of COVID because we have lower population density, among other things. So I remember the rural areas will be protected because um, there are lower population densities or comments like, you know, agricultural workers who work outside are, you know, protected, you know, they, they naturally socially distance. I heard that a lot. They 
farmers like to socially distance. That's why they're farmers, right? That's that sort of language, which is all fine and well, but you know, of course we forgot and paid no attention to the meatpacking industry um, and other industries until it was just absolutely dire, which was tragic. Um, and I think too, we learned a little bit um, early on, I was asked by a few journalists of sort of predictions for <laughs> what's this gonna mean for the food chain. Um, and my thought at the time was, well, the, the large scale um, national and global food chain has a lot of protections, which is true, right? There's a lot of structural support. There's a lot of financial support. And we saw those, like they were rolling them out. Um, but it's such a sort of efficient system that one little, one little tweak in the wheel and you throw everything off the rails, which we saw with backups and processing here in Iowa, et cetera. On the other hand, we saw a local food system that is presumably based on face-to-face -face relationships that actually did very well. <laughs> and uh, people were able to adapt and move really quickly. And so I guess I've been thinking about those differences as you know, lessons for small and regional systems and how nimble they can be and how responsive to things like this they can be. We still saw issues with like, yeah, the, the, the access and over, you know, hospital capacity, et cetera. But there is, I think there are lessons to be learned in kind of smaller scale production systems that it can shift really quickly um, and can actually, you know, sort of make, make some lemonade out of, of lemons in this case um, and, and try out new op options that, that worked really well. And the large scale system, that was not the case because you just, you, you have no margin for error. You have no room to move in those systems. So it was, I, you know, intellectually interesting to watch this play out. Of course, it's also tragic as we watch the, the death count continue to climb. It's hard to see silver linings in it. When I think about the pandemic, I think about kind of the impact on employers who are trying to figure out what to do. Everything changed so rapidly and there had to be such a quick response that information was flying all around. And one of the hard things was to try to sift through that information and figure out what really is a good solution and what should I do? What do I have to do? What do I want to do? What can I do? You know, kind of those sorts of things. You know, for employers, in a sense, you've got to get that information to them quickly. Um, and they need to know that there's resources out there to, to sift through that and how to make it apply to their specific organization. But it's just, you know, there really is a need, you know, you could talk about broadband and that, you know, if you don't, if you can look up information, you have the time to search on it, that's really good. I look at our jobs as occupational safety and health professionals, or, or, you know, our job is to translate research into practice. So how do we take that? How can we facilitate that and make it useful? Um, many of our employers are small and they don't have those resources that the large organizations do. When you talked about the food chain, Brandy, you're talking about those large organizations that, you know, or they're part of it. I'm talking about a broader thing than just one organization, but they have a lot of um, people who think about health and safety on a regular basis. And, you know, a lot of companies don't. Um, so it's really important to think about how we move information and how we can decide what's appropriate. And I think the pandemic showed us we can do some things really well and other things not so well, but we need to maybe pause and reflect and think about what we wanna take forward. One of the things that I think is also important is to connect COVID-19 to uh, changes that we're seeing in the in the climate as well. 
So a lot of these topics that we've talked about are not are 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 interconnected in many ways. We've said that I think through the series, but COVID nineteen is no is not different than a lot of other topics, and that it is as an infectious disease um, interconnected to a lot of the other issues that we've talked about through the series. Well, I think that the big lesson of COVID nineteen is we're all connected, and so something that happens in a different part of the world can profoundly change our life. And it doesn't matter if we are considering ourselves living in a big town or a small town or in, in a really rural part of the world, it can affect us. And COVID-19 in, in, in many ways has, has driven this home, but you know we're still connected in things that aren't our food that we're buying at the grocery store maybe coming from a, from, from a place where there is a chemical hazard in there that can potentially affect our health. And so it matters you know, where that is coming from. The same thing applies to our air and maybe to a lesser extent to the water, but our water, what we're putting in the water, it will affect somebody else. And, and so I think that's important to keep in the back of our mind. And in some ways, COVID-19, this whole pandemic was a very hard lesson for us to, you know, to learn that again, and, and maybe see it very vividly. I guess the other thing that's, that's really important that we're learning here, public health actually matters. And back to sort of the, the definition of health, I think COVID-19 is also, it has confirmed what the definition of health is to public health professionals. So as you said, Hannah, this series covers a lot of things, some of which some people would consider health and others might not. But in public health, we look at a very broad range of determinants of health and a critical aspect of those determinants are social and environmental. Um, and COVID-19 has helped us see the interaction between all of that, but employment and health, oppression and health. I mean, all these things that we talk about often in public health as health. Um, and we can see through many, you know, through many uh, health conditions, not only COVID, but COVID has just sort of brought it up very starkly. I asked our guests for their final thoughts as we wrap up this series. I hope that the series helps people understand the importance of rural areas. I get most worried, I guess, when I kind of hear um, or read in my coast, elite coastal literature that I consume, uh, the newspapers and stuff, that... Uh, you know, sort of the, the let it go, like, eh, there aren't that many people there. Let's, why are we so worried about it? And that actually worries me more than anything else, I think, you know, this, this kind of willingness um, to let, let whole communities go by the wayside and be seen as unimportant, especially when they make considerable contributions to food and energy systems that actually most people rely on. So I hope that um, people have a better understanding of that from the series. Um, I'm also very interested in the, the arts and culture that come out of rural areas, thinking about the, the pandemic and the way that's changed things and the way that live performances, live music, live uh, small, even little events um, go away. There was just a big piece this morning about some folks in the Ozarks who have had a jam for decades and decades. These old, old guys, people I knew, um, and you know, it's been put by the wayside because of COVID. So they're listening. That's the first thing. They are socially distancing and they're doing the right things, but it really means that there's a whole um, catalog of knowledge that isn't being shared. Um, and so that is feels very disruptive. 
um, you know, you can't pick that back up on the internet in the same way, even if they did have broadband. So that's where those face-to-face -face things matter. So yeah, I hope that it helps people kind of understand the role that, that rural communities play in the, in the overall systems that we all rely on. Thank you so much for listening as we wrap up this 10-week series. Share Public Health is going to take a break next week. Come back in two weeks to learn about the amazing public health work that a library in Brooklyn is doing. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to the Injury Prevention Research Center, Iowa Center for Agricultural Safety and Health, the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest, the Heartland Center for Occupational Health and Safety, the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Rural Policy Research Institute. The theme song for this series is Walk Along John. It's performed by Al Murphy on fiddle, Mark Jansen on mandolin, Brandy Jansen on banjo, Warren Hanlon on guitar, and Aletta Murphy on bass. Al learned these songs from a fiddler named Delbert Spray, who is from Cahoka, Missouri. A transcript, evaluation, and discussion guide for this episode are available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.